Are you a child of God? Is God your father? How can you know? What difference does it make? Now, there's a sense, of course, in which God relates in a fatherly way to all people. But I speak here of God receiving you, adopting you into a new personal relationship with Him as your Father. We broke off from our series through the book of Romans for the summer months, but returning today, we remember that the book has established that we are born in a state of sinful rebellion to God. We are born in a state of alienation from Him. It's a countercultural message, but one that rings very true deep within. We know that sin comes easily. We know that rebellion against God was our natural state. We weren't taught to lie. We weren't taught to steal. We weren't taught to hate others and promote ourselves. This all came very naturally. And the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans calls it what it is. As he says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God revealing His glory in creation, but we suppress that truth. We put it under the rug, so to speak. We hold it down. And as he continues on through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he makes it clear that this is true of all of us. Even those who perceive themselves to be righteous and good people. He makes it clear that as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As he works his way to chapter 7, He makes it clear that in our flesh, as we stand before God on our own, we're incapable of pleasing God. We fall short with our lives in innumerable ways. But of course, Paul's whole message, beginning in the first words of chapter 1, are to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. We read of that in a very succinct way, in a glorious text that says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from our obedience to what God has said and our incapacity to obey what He has said. God is yet righteous to save. It's apart from law, although the law and the prophets certainly bear witness to it. All of revealed truth has been pointing this way. But the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All break God's law. All fall short of the glory of God. We are justified then not by keeping the law, not by pleasing God by our religious deeds. How are we justified? How does God righteously look at us as sinners as just? We are justified by His grace as a gift. 
His grace, what we don't deserve, as a gift, what we could never purchase. And that gift of grace comes through the work of Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection. It's in Christ, this salvation. It comes from Him. It is in our relationship to Him. For we hold, he continues in chapter 3, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Not because the law is bad. It's God's Word. It's His light to us. But because we are bad. Because we cannot fulfill it in a way that pleases the Lord. Thus, justification comes by faith as we put our trust in God's gracious gift of Jesus crucified and risen. Becoming a child of God, then, is a matter of faith in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Not a matter of human obedience or religious achievement. But how do I know that I have truly trusted the work of Christ and that God is now my Father? Where does that assurance come from? There's more than one way in which to answer that question, but Romans 8 reveals these truths. Think on them with me. We might not think in this direction, naturally. But what we find are three ideas. One, God's Holy Spirit has come to live in me. How do I know that I'm a child of God? God's Spirit has come to dwell within me. Secondly, I actively then conform my life to the desires of the indwelling Spirit. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit, assuring me that I am God's child. So the indwelling of the Spirit leading to my active responsiveness to what the Spirit desires, and the Spirit within witnessing to my human spirit, you are mine. I am your Father. We are related spiritually as Christ has saved us. And we might really not like that, honestly. We might like something a lot more objective. As I've thought for a long time, it would be really nice if the true believers had a halo glowing over their head. It just would make life so much easier, wouldn't it? We know who's lost, who's saved. It's real simple. Or maybe it's just a list. And if we go through this list, one, two, three, four, now we know objectively that we are saved. We've done something. We maybe even have a document signed by a counselor. It gives me the willy sometimes, but every once in a while you see a, a Bible where somebody has written in and signed their name saying so-and-so was saved on this day. Well, the, the lure of that is that it's very objective, Some big person signed my Bible and said, I'm now a believer. The presence of the Spirit of God, there's more subjectivity here than we might find comfortable. But I don't think we can get around the implications that Paul reveals here in Romans chapter 8 as we merge back into the series at this point. 
we are counseled to put our full faith and dependence upon what God reveals in His Word. So this means that there is truth that we must come to believe about ourselves. Believe me, the world has its alternative message. It is telling you how to think about yourself all the time. Oh, God also tells us what to think about ourselves. We've looked at some of that here today, and we'll look more carefully at the place of the Spirit revealed to us. And then secondly, knowing what God has revealed about our relationship with Him, we are called then to act upon that truth. To respond actively to what we know to be true that God has revealed about us. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, the emphasis falls somewhat on the indicative. That is, here's the truth. Here's what God has done. And then in verses 12 through 17, the emphasis leans toward the imperative. Here's what you must do in response. Look for this as you read, particularly the New Testament. And so often, so carefully in the books that Paul has written, here is what God has done. Here is who God is. And then the implications follow. Here's what we must then do. We see something of that emphasis here in the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8. As we enter into this and remerge with this chapter, we will uh, review as we have looked at some of these verses in the past, but I'll summarize them and look at them a bit differently. But we find, first of all, in verses 1 through 11, this truth. United by faith to Jesus Christ, we have new life in the Spirit. This is a truth we must come to perceive and embrace by faith. United by faith to Jesus Christ, and all that that means, we have new life in the Spirit. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He starts there on that glorious note coming out of chapter 7 and our misery as human beings standing in our own strength, living in the flesh, and even as believers possibly responding to the flesh and its influence. More on that later, but there's no condemnation to us now who have come to salvation in Christ. Now, what does that mean to be in Christ Jesus? If you're not familiar with that phrase, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Simplifying it some, maybe oversimplifying, but it's, it's serviceable. It's just like drawing a circle. And we have come outside of Christ at birth to walk inside the circle. We're in Christ. We're in all that He means, all that He has done to secure His people. It's kind of shorthand for believers united by faith to Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. When we trust the gospel, we die with Christ to sin. We're going to spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out what that means. But it's a fact that God has given to us and we're coming to discern that in my relationship with God, there was a union with Jesus in His death and a union with Jesus in His resurrection. It's not just a story of the past, not just a historical account, which it is, but there's a union that I have with that message of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
I'm in Christ as I trust the gospel. By uniting us with Jesus' death and resurrection, God's just condemnation against our sin is removed. It's eliminated. You notice that simple word now. There is therefore now. That is now in the age of the Spirit that supersedes the old age of Mosaic law. Our sin debt has been canceled in Adam. In the circle of Adam, just born as a human being in sin, God's just judgment and wrath rested upon us. But now we've been transferred to the circle of in Christ and united with His death and with His resurrection There is hope. There is salvation. No condemnation. Verse 2, For for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I think what Paul's doing here is to say, let me say that a bit differently. You are in Christ. What that means is that the law of the Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit who gives us life, has set you free in that circle of Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death from the dominion and the mastery of sin. So there's no condemnation and there's no longer bondage to sin in Christ. God's Holy Spirit gives life to our dead souls, freeing us from the law of sin and death. When you trusted Jesus as your Savior, you may not have sensed this. But when you trusted in His death and resurrection, you were liberated from the reign and the binding authority of sin. The mastery of sin ended, theoretically, in that moment. You may not know right where that moment was in your journey of faith, but at that point, sin's mastery stopped. Not its presence. Not its influence, but its mastery was over. The realm of death in Adam is replaced now in our lives with the realm of the life that is in the Spirit of God. Now, none of this is our own doing, he stresses, verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Draw upon what you know of Romans, perhaps from the series before, we'll not be able to get into this in any depth, but the law of God was given. It was a good law. It revealed the law or the will of God. But the weakness to it, its incapacity was in us. The law of God did not show people how to achieve salvation. It showed them that they needed it. And it shows us that we need it. When the conscience speaks to the law of God and we violate our conscience, we do what we know is wrong. We recognize that we are not going to fit ourselves before God by keeping the law. God has done what the law, however, could not do for you, for me. What is that? Verse 3. He's done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. So by sending His own Son, there's the incarnation. God the Father sends the Son in the person of Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. I think Paul's kind of tiptoeing around the idea that Jesus was, in fact, fully human in bodily form, He was not exactly like us in the fact that He did not sin. 
but he came in the likeness of human flesh. And God sent Jesus, you note there in verse 3, for sin. That means, I think, to address the problem of sin. Or the margin as a sacrifice for sin, which is how he addressed the problem of sin. So either way, or whatever marginal reading we might have, it's the same point. And he condemns sin in the flesh. That is, Jesus died as our sinless substitute, the righteous dying for the unrighteous. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might be delivered from sin and its penalty. He paid that cost for us. And he did this in part, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. One commentator says, Spirit and flesh are two exclusive realms, two authorities or governing powers. One is either in the Spirit or in the flesh, but not in both at the same time. The language indicates a sense of sovereignty and totality of one or the other. I think that's casting it in the right terms. There is, we are not in the flesh and in the spirit at once battling inside of us as some sort of sinful schizophrenia. This bipolar person, one day in the flesh, one day in the Spirit. We're in the circle of the Spirit. We're in the circle of Christ. We're no longer in the circle of the flesh. We've been delivered from that circle. So don't read it that way. But do understand, Christian, Jesus died for your sin so that you would display His righteousness. There's some teaching we hear from time to time that seems to indicate that Jesus came to rescue you from hell. Period. It'd be nice if you lived a Christian life, but you know, it's not really the point. The point is He rescued you from hell. And whatever you can do to help the church out and help your own Christian life out is, is nice, but He came to rescue you from hell. You will not find that in the New Testament text, Ever. He did come to rescue us from hell and judgment. He came to rescue us from sin now as well. And we'll always see that emphasis. And is that not far more glorious? The work is happening now in us to deliver us from sin. It's little by little. It's with a lot of stumbles along the way. But Jesus Christ saved us to rescue us from unrighteousness right now. What we say with our tongues, what we think, where we go, what we do, what we love, the pleasure that we seek, Jesus died to transform that. Every word, every thought, every decision, every affection. Now. Not just in heaven. Not just on the new earth. But here. The law could not... The law that we could not keep when we were in Adam, we are now empowered to keep in the realm of the Spirit. Under the influence and the mastery of God's indwelling Spirit, I can now carry out the will of God. Now it does not come to us, it doesn't meet us as law. There has been a change in the coming of Christ that way. But the presence of the Spirit enables me to keep 
the law of God, to do God's will. Notice Paul's description of believers here. In fact, in verse 4, it's those who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. I wonder, I wonder what would happen if somebody came to join our church and we would be probing to see, because there's no halo, we'd be probing to see if they really know Christ as Savior. And you ask them, can you give testimony to your faith in Christ, to your salvation? And they say, I walk according to the Spirit. That would be a very accurate statement. Now obviously we'd need to find out some other things because what people think the Spirit is isn't even clear sometimes. But that is what should define us. I live listening to the Spirit of God. I live responding to the will of the Spirit of God. Now we can turn that into some hokey-pokey thing of hearing the Spirit's whispering this and that, what to have for breakfast, what, what uh, shirt to put on, what car to buy. Uh, the, it's not that. But there is, in fact, a subjective, individual relationship with the Spirit of God whose desires are being carried out in my life. That's what a Christian is. How do I know I'm a true believer? I honor the desires of the Holy Spirit. Clearly not always. But that's my desire, to match my desires with the Holy Spirit's desires for me. I remain susceptible to temptation in the, of the flesh, but, I'm no lo- but I no longer live by the dictates of fleshly desires, and I certainly don't love them. And I can't answer this for you. But you need to search your own heart. Is there a love in my heart for what I know God hates? I'm not saying a temptation, an interest, a knowledge of the pleasure that sin can provide for a season. I'm saying, do you love sin? Do you love the way that goes against what God desires? Do you feel like you're kind of under His pressure to do what you really don't want to do? That's where you are. There's a warning here. We love you enough to say it. God loves you enough to record it here. Ask yourself whether you're listening to the Spirit of God, whether the Spirit of God indwells you. Now Paul uses the word flesh in a lot of different ways, but here again I think it speaks of that realm of unredeemed humanity. The world apart from Christ. The Adamic orientation. So we live according to the flesh in our fallenness, but for believer indwelt by the Spirit, we live according to the Spirit. That is, the authority and governing power of the Spirit points us to the purposes of the new age in Christ. I want what God wants. Now, if you're here struggling with sin, as we all are on some level, there should be hope in that. When you say, I don't want to sin. I want to live in accordance with the Spirit's desires. There's great comfort in that to know that the Spirit is working and drawing me to Himself. Jesus was sent to win for us the spiritual life we could never achieve by keeping God's law. Secondly, Under this head, we are now able to please God by heeding the influence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let's take these verses together. They could be grouped as indicated here. But let's see verse 5. 
First, he makes the point negatively, and he will through here through contrast. But for those who live according to the flesh, for, here's explanation, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. There's what I've been saying. We want to live according to the desires of the Spirit. We are in Christ. That's an evidence of it. Where we live according to the things of the flesh, we live according to, remember what it is? It's please me. It's give me. It's honor me. It's a way that I live. Please me, give me, honor me. If I'm in the realm of the Spirit, I live to please God, to give to God, and to honor God. My self doesn't evaporate, but I find my joy in living that way in relationship to the Lord. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. So there's consequences to this. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. There's these two roads and they really diverge widely. Life and peace is not feelings of some psychological state of mind, but the realm of salvation into which the believer has entered through the Spirit. There's death, I think that's speaking eternally. There is life eternally. And now this stern warning, verses 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So don't look at some little things you can do. Look at the realm you're in. Don't look at some small religious task that you can do to say, see, I can please God, I am pleasing God. Ask what realm you're in. Because if you are in the realm of the flesh, you have not been united with Jesus in His death and resurrection, you cannot please God. You can do good things that please others. You can do things that God asks you to do, in fact. But you cannot please Him. You cannot satisfy His righteousness because you're operating in your own strength and for your own glory. But those who are in the Spirit can please God. We must be delivered from the realm in which we are born dying. But we don't need to try harder. What we need is a Savior. We need new life. Verse 9, you, now he turns to his readers, you, however, may God be merciful to allow this to be Eden Baptist, be your life. You, however, are not in the flesh. You're not in that circle, but you are in the Spirit. Who's he speaking to? If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, there's the indwelling again. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you belong to God, if He is your Father, the Spirit dwells within you. If not, you're in another realm. You're in the realm of the flesh, and He is not your Father. But, verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, I think if Christ is in you, interchangeable with the Spirit indwells you, both indwell, different ministries, but very related. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
a bit of a challenging turn of phrase. But here I think Paul is, again, speaking of the indwelling spirit and, and the indwelling Christ. Although the body is dead because of sin, I think means that my physical body is subject to physical death and it is dying. Although the body is dead because of sin. Our bodies, although they are alive, are as good as dead. They're on their way there. But in contrast, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. That is, the Holy Spirit enlivens us as Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. It's all about righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ placed on our account, which thus secures our eternal life. So in this way, we enjoy spiritual life now and ultimately the redemption of our bodies, a point that Paul now stresses in verse 11. You see the flow of thought to the body and to the future. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit comes and dwells in you. That's the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. It's going to raise you from the dead as well because you're in Christ. Now, how thinking about these things could we ever draw the conclusion that none of this matters? How could we draw the conclusion that this doesn't really matter? It's just interesting or not. Makes sense or it doesn't. But it really has no implications. Never could we say such a thing. As Paul moves then to this next section, he stresses this, that led by the Holy Spirit, we are liberated to mortify sin and live as God's children. To mortify, to put to death sin in our lives. These facts have implications. Let's think on them. Verse 12. So then... Brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. I gave a story, an illustration some weeks back. Maybe some of you will remember it. I don't want to flesh it all out again. But if you remember the little slave boy in the Civil War era, his master abused him from birth on his plantation. His master derided, hated, manipulated, hurt this young boy. But he also used alcohol to ply him and to control him. And the kid was an absolute mess. But the Civil War ends. The boy is liberated from slavery. And a northern general sent to the boy's town to lead reconstruction adopts him takes him into his home and cleans him up and begins to teach him how to live and gets him off of the alcohol that has controlled his life now as a young man. And in the process of this retraining, this new realm in which he is living, he has to go to school. And going to school means he needs to walk down the lane that goes right past the old plantation. And as he does, day after day, going to school, the old master yells at him. 
and tells him he needs to get back on the plantation. You owe me your life. I have fed you. You were born under my authority. You are my slave. I don't care what governments and armies have done. You're mine. Get back here in anger, in abuse. Other days, the slave boy walks past the plantation and the master gently offers drink. Come back on. You remember. You remember the taste. You remember the influence. Come on and just drink with me today. It may be very tempting for the young man to be lured back onto that plantation. But his adoptive father finds out what's happening and says what to this liberated slave who's now his adopted son? You owe that master nothing. Son, you are free You walk right past that plantation and I'm telling you that old master is incapable of harming you. I know. I'm a general. I have troops. He's not going to touch you. It may be tempting when he lures you back on with alcohol, but you set your face straight. You walk towards school. He has no power over you whatsoever. I'll end that man one day. I'll deal with him, just not today. Today, you need to trust me. You need to walk past him. You need to honor my will, not his. You need to do what is good, not what is evil. And when your will pulls you to his side, remember me. Remember our relationship. Remember your new freedom, your new life. And walk on, son. Walk on. So, follower of Christ, what are the sins with which you're struggling? We all are. We admit it, we know it, we can articulate it. Is it greed? Is it a longing to have what you don't have? Is it allowing what you don't have to control every day of your life to cloud your spirit? Is it sexual perversion, which you know does not please God, which you know corrupts the spirit, but there's a craving there for that pleasure? Is it gossip? Is it pride? You trip over and over again, but you want to be seen as big. You want to be respected. You want to be honored. Is it fear? Is it sloth? Is it doubt? Is it uncontrolled anger that continues to harm others around you and mess up your own life? What is it, follower of Jesus? What is the temptation? I want you to truly think about that. And to know this, you are no slave to that sin. You owe it nothing. You're not under the realm and the mastery of Satan any longer. And that sin 
is dead to you. Doesn't mean you don't feel it. Doesn't mean you don't sense it. Its influence continues. But you have to know this about yourself if you are in Christ. And you can walk right on by. You owe the flesh nothing. Sin's power has been broken in my life. I must continue to think this and to know this, even as I fall and struggle. But I know this, that power has been broken. It really has. Just like this young man walking by the old master's place, the master can talk to him. He can tempt him, but he cannot master him. He's going to have to turn on on that plantation and go do whatever's going to happen there. But he's going to choose to do that. That's not wishful thinking. That's not mind games. It's God's revealed truth to us. And did you ever hear for the first time, did you hear the gospel and go, this is crazy. How could this possibly be true? But in time, through the work of the Spirit of God, you came to realize it can't not be true. A similar thing is going on here. We can look at the temptations that draw us in and say, I'm not dead to that. That does have mastery over me. It is controlling me. But we come to realize that's not the truth. That's not what Christ has done. He has liberated you from that sin. You don't owe a debt to the flesh. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Here's the warning again. It's not die physically. Everybody's going to die physically. That's death eternally. If you live in that realm, if you stay in the realm of the flesh, if you live under the master of sin, you're going to die. But... If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Does that trouble you, that statement? It shouldn't trouble us. Stay in the realm of the flesh, eternal death. In the realm of the Spirit, you're going to be putting sin to death until you meet God. You don't get the sense, do you, in verse 13... And Paul's saying, you know, here's something you might want to try if you get around to it. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Put sin to death. You know, I mean, you might think about it. He's saying this is the way it will be, Christian. This is the way it will be. Are you a child of God? If so, the Spirit indwells you. And if the Spirit indwells you, one of the objective evidences will be that you live a life putting sin to death in your experiences, practices, and affections. If you live in the realm of the flesh, you'll die eternally. But if you live in the realm of the Spirit, what would you expect it to say? You'll live eternally. And that's true. But you see how it says something about this life. You will be one putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's going to be your life, is to kill sin. God's children are, not perfectly... Sometimes pitifully, but God's children are sin-suffocating, sin-dousing, sin-uprooting people. That's who they are. We're not comfortable with sin. We don't welcome it. We don't like it. We put it to death. 
What does that mean? How do you put sin to death in your life? Take a whole series of sermons to talk about it, but let's just say what we know. The body's not evil, but it is an instrument of sin. So how do we put to death sin in the instrument of the body? Well, the first thing that we do is we learn what sin is. So we know what we're targeting. We know what we're looking to root out. And we're going to come for the rest of our lives to understand what sin is more and more. There might even be things we think are sin that aren't. But there's certainly a lot of things that we never saw as sin that are. So we're going to learn what sin is. That means what? You could follow it. It's very logical. The next thing is what? We're going to confess sin. Because as we learn what sin is, we're going to realize we fall short and fail God. And so we're going to say it. We're going to ask His forgiveness by confessing that what we've done is sin. We're going to ask God in prayer to not lead us into temptation. We're going to ask God to give us new desires. I have these cravings. I have this weakness. Please supplant it with a higher love, with your grace. We pray. We're going to pray the rest of our lives. Maybe even about the same sin. But keep asking God to take away the power of it in your life. The influence of that voice coming off the plantation, calling you back in. We're going to discipline our lives to avoid temptation. We're not going to play with temptation. not going to make ways to find it easy. We're going to make ways to find it hard. Now, that can go the wrong direction where we begin to just fight in the flesh the flesh but I'm going to discipline my life away from temptation. It means strategizing in relationships with others to fight sin in communion with Christ's body. There's discouraging days in pastoral ministry. One of the most encouraging days in pastoral ministry is when someone expresses their sin. You say, well, wouldn't that make you really depressed? No. When somebody talks to you to me, when I talk to someone about our sin, that's battle. That's a win. I realize it can be a loss by how we talk about it, but talking about it honorably with, other, with another believer is fighting the battle. It's a way to uproot the weed. So I got a clump of weeds... Maybe it's just my lawn that has these, but we have the kind that like take the whole back to get it out, you know. You get that weed and maybe you get somebody else to come alongside that big patch of weeds and you're yanking on that thing with all your worth and you say, can you help me here? And they grab a bit of the roots and you yank together. That's fighting sin. That's rooting it out. That's putting it to death. It will involve, of course, submitting to the watch care and discipline of a local church. To know that a church's watch care over me is part of God's sanctifying process. It will mean growing in love for Christ by reading His Word, by serving His cause, by praying. Giving myself to the life of Christ, not withdrawing. And isn't that what you want to do? When the battle against sin seems to be a losing battle, when you seem to be slipping back, when you seem to be getting beaten up by the old master, what do you want to do? Come to church? Go to that Bible study? 
gather with that brother or sister in Christ. No, you want to stay home. You want to curl up, walk away, do something else. You don't like the light at that moment. When I most want the darkness is when I most need the light. We battle it together. We grow doing the things that God wants us to do. And we could go on and on. But putting sin to death, if you weren't sure how to answer that question, really the life of the church is all about that at every level. That's why we walk together in the fellowship of God's body is to keep putting sin to death, to keep rooting it out little by little. It's a big field. There's lots of weeds. You'll be doing it till the day you die. But keep pulling the weeds. Put sin to death. That's what a Christian is. That's how to identify one. In the realm of the flesh, eternal death. In the realm of the spirit, eternal life. And one who is ever putting sin to death. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. The Holy Spirit does not lead Satan's children. The Spirit's presence influences the godly bent of our lives, and that bent bears witness of our status as God's children. For, explanatory, verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There perhaps is serviceable that illustration. This young man walking by the old master's place, that spirit of fear, that spirit of intimidation and domination, that's gone. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear when you trusted Christ as Savior. You can stand against sin. It's an enemy that has no power over you as it, on its own. but you have received the spirit of adoption. You notice there that spirit, at least in this text, is capitalized. That could be debated. It's a human spirit of slavery, of fear, of domination. It could be a human spirit of adoption as we relate to God or indeed the Holy Spirit. And the difference is so minimal that we just look on what is obvious here and that's that by it we cry, Abba, Father. We cry out, that is, in prayer, we raise our voice. We speak to God, oh, hear it, Christian, as our Father. As our Father. We've been adopted. We're not under the old master any longer. He's our Father. This was a term of endearment an address that speaks of love and trust and family identity. The Spirit fills our hearts with a sense that we belong to Him as His child. How do I know I'm God's child? The answer is not in simply what I know. It's not only what I can put on paper and write out by way of testimony. That's helpful as people join the church. It allows us to get into their story, to hear how Christ saved them. It's encouraging and challenging, and it's objective because it's black and white on paper, but there's more to it than I know the facts. There is an inner experiential sense 
that I'm a child of God. Expanding on that thought, verse 16, he says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The human spirit and the witness of the Holy Spirit working together. I don't think this witness is audible. I don't know that it is possible for it to be necessarily. But there's no evidence it must be audible. I don't think that it typically is audible. But there is a witness of the Spirit within. And it's not merely intellectual. There is a subjective experiential sense deep in our inner being that we are God's child. It's just conjecture. I don't know my own heart. I don't know the realities of the Spirit of God. But I think, I think it's what happened to me today. As we sung the song, And Can It Be? I don't understand it. But that phrase, my eye diffused a quickening ray. God sent this beam of light into my soul. And as I sung that, there was just a sense, that's me. I know that's me. I know God did that to me. I think that's the witness of the Spirit. It's not just a line on a screen. It's not just kind of a a neat turn of phrase. It's God did that in my soul. I don't know. I can't prove it. I can't say where it is and how you hear it and how it hits. So many times sitting in this congregation with God's sweet singing church, the witness comes to me again and again. You are mine. I don't deserve that. I don't earn it. It's not a status that I've gained. It's the diffusion of light from the throne of God into the soul that is dark that enlightens it and gives us hope in Him. Different people, different ways, spirit moving as He chooses to move. That may not be the way the witness hits you. I may be wrong about it. I don't know. But there needs to be some sense that the Spirit of God is witnessing with your spirit. Not, I'm a fake. Not, I hope nobody finds out what's really in my heart. Not, I have all the right facts. But a witness deep within that says, you are my child. And my spirit responds, Abba. Father, dear Father, I love you because you have loved me first. When does that witness grow quietest? When we fail to put sin to death in our lives. When does that witness grow loudest? When we put sin to death in our lives. Remember that as you battle sin. Don't forget it. This sin I choose to commit, this sin I keep committing without thinking, or this sin that has a powerful pull on me, engaging in that sin is a choice to weaken the witness of God's Spirit in my being. Now thinking about it right here in front of all of you, that really helps me. In the quiet of temptations of sin, it's harder, isn't it? But remember this. Think of it this way. In choosing sin, 
I'm choosing to weaken the sound of the Spirit's voice in my soul. I don't want that. I want nothing to do with that. When I root sin out of my life, when I choose obedience, the Spirit's witness grows stronger. No sin is worth eroding the confidence that I have in my relationship with Christ. Paul's going somewhere with all of this, so he adds one implication to our family identity, and he'll hit it much harder further. But verse 17, that if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're not illegitimate children. We're not forgotten children. We are adopted as inheritors of eternity with Christ. One qualification, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Does suffering save us? No. But suffering is the inevitable experience of those who follow Jesus. Suffering doesn't save, but suffering will come. Imagine you're trapped in the boundary waters. That's a place with lots of lakes and lots of little islands, if you're not sure where that is. And these islands have camping sites, some of them. So imagine you're on one of those camping sites and there's a forest fire and your island is being consumed in the flame. Your canoe burns. You've got no hope here. But a rescuer shows up out of nowhere, says, follow me. You follow him. You never would have seen it in a million years, but three feet under the surface of this lake is a sandbar that leads all the way to another island in safety. And you trudge along three feet deep in the water all the way to the other island, and you're safe. Do you look back and say, somebody says, how, did, how were you rescued? And you say, by getting wet. I got wet. That's why I'm rescued. I mean, you would never, it would never cross your mind to say that. Did you get wet? Yes. I was rescued by the rescuer. Same thing here. We don't, we're not saved by suffering. But if you follow Jesus, you're going to suffer. You're going to get wet in the analogies. That makes sense? I don't look at the suffering as the salvation. Somebody could read it that way, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If we suffer, we gain salvation. No. If we follow Jesus, we suffer, however. There's going to be people, if you're in the realm of the Spirit, the Spirit dwells within you, there's going to be people who ridicule you. There's going to be a world that in virtually every headline goes against everything you believe and think. There is going to be those who reject and perhaps imprison and kill. But we don't live a home game here, do we? You will suffer. Suffering in a fallen world, some of that suffering will fall from Christ to us. But if we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. So can you say this? God's Holy Spirit has come to dwell in me. I actively conform my life to the desires of the indwelling Spirit. And the Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit, assuring me that I am God's child. How rich we are to be able to say these things. If you cannot and you're in the realm of the flesh, and you don't have desires to follow God, I encourage you to think clearly about where you are. To know the warnings 
that are here, but to also come and know that Jesus Christ saves sinners. Not good people who've qualified for his salvation. It's a gift of grace. And I encourage you to come and trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. For believers struggling with assurance, be patient. Be patient. Turn from sin at every opportunity. Seek the Lord in prayer. Seek counsel. Don't quit. Don't give up in dependence on yourself. Trust in our Father. And for those walking in fellowship with Him, what a joy is ours to be able to say, Abba, Father. To know the evidences of the Spirit in the rooting out of sin and to follow His lead to salvation, even when it leads through suffering. He suffered the ultimate price. We suffer minimally here. But because of His resurrection, our future is glory. Abba, Father. We thank You, Lord, for these truths. I don't know that any one of us would claim that we can, would, will live them out as we should. But we recognize what You have said. We rejoice in it. And I pray that those who are not your children would recognize that a call is being made. They must respond. They must get out of the realm of the flesh, not by effort, but by rescue. For those of us who live in relationship with you this way, may we rejoice this day, not take for granted, but rejoice that you are our dear Father. We thank you for this work of grace in our lives through Christ, in whose name we pray.